Good morning, Edgewood. Thanks for joining us on this Easter morning. Happy Easter to you. Uh, wish we could be here in the sanctuary together, celebrating corporately the resurrection of uh, our Lord and Savior. Uh, again, unusual times and circumstances, uh, but I trust that by the power of God's Spirit, not only will your heart and mind be encouraged as uh, you set it to remember the things that God has done, uh, but that even this brief time that we have in the Word uh, would be uh, one of the ways that the Lord uh, brings your mind to the things that are above, and especially as we move into uh, the sermon portion of our morning today later on at 1030. Uh, for the time that we have right now, we're going to be continuing our study in 2 Samuel. We're picking up in 2 Samuel chapter 23 this morning. Uh, I will open us up with a word of prayer just briefly here and then let you know what it is that we're going to do with this passage. We're not going to cover all of it, and then we'll just uh, work through as best we can uh, some of the, uh, with some of the observations that we want to make in this chapter uh, for the time that's allotted to us. So if you would, uh, bow your heads and uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your kindness to us. We thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, the reminder that not only has our sin been, uh, been buried, but we have been raised with him in newness of life, no longer to be slaves to sin, no longer to be um, buried under the guilt of our offenses, of our shame. We ask that you would give us understanding now as we come to your word. Uh, think about uh, what the text says in Luke 24, how after the resurrection, uh, Jesus opened their eyes and opened their minds to understand the things written in the scriptures. Would you do that for us this morning, even at a distance? Continue to be with everyone uh, during these uncertain times. We pray especially for those who are battling with infections and virus. Uh, may they find their security and a great and eternal king who rules and reigns over all things. And it's in the name of Jesus, our risen Lord, that we pray. Amen. Second Samuel 23. I'm going to read the first seven verses and then pause for a little bit of discussion. Let me first say, uh, just give sort of the, the lay of the land for this chapter. We have said for the last couple of weeks that starting in chapter 21, that the last uh, what, three or four chapters of Second Samuel, 21 through 24, for, um, are used as this closing unit and that there appears to be a pattern in the way that this unit is put together that helps us understand that the material that we have here is placed here intentionally, not just at random. So the way that the, uh, that the pattern works, it starts again in chapter 21 with a national disaster followed by a discussion of David's uh, military men, followed by a song. Here where we're picking up today, we've got a song, followed by uh, a discussion of David's military men, and then finally, 2 Samuel ends with another national disaster. By doing that, what, what is put at the center of the concluding unit 
are the two songs that we have attributed to David in chapter 22 and then here in the beginning of chapter 23, which means that as the author closes out 2 Samuel, what he's wanting us to do is in some ways to, uh, to wrap up this story of David and to wrap it up by centering it on the theology, the teaching that's found in David's Psalms. So keep that in mind as you read here that we have gone through essentially the bulk of David's career. And as we look back and try to make sense out of everything that we've read, both the highs and the lows, one of the things that the author is wanting us to do is to filter David's rule and reign through the words of this song that we read here this morning. So in 2 Samuel 23, verse 1, now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, the man who was raised on high declares, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me, he who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. Truly is not my house so with God, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured. For all my salvation and all my desire, will he not indeed make it grow? But the worthless, every one of them, will be thrust away like thorns because they cannot be taken in hand. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they will be completely burned with fire in their place. One of the things that we want to take note of right off, uh, right off and uh, we, this is not reflected in the uh, the rendering that the New American Standard has, which is the version that I just read for. But chapter 23 is introduced by saying that these words are an oracle. That's actually the Hebrew that you have in there refers to this as some sort of uh, an oracle by David. And usually when you hear that word, uh, if you were to think uh, this is an oracle of David, you would attribute um, some sort of weightiness to what's being said. It almost takes on sort of a, a prophetic sense to it almost. So one of the things that is worth considering as we go through here is that one of the reasons that we have this brief song is not just because it's a reflection on David and it's supposed to inform us about how to read the account of David's life and career, but because as an oracle, there may be additional prophetic significance to this, perhaps even beyond what David would have been able to realize and appreciate himself. So that being said, notice that as, uh, as David works his way through here, the most important thing to recognize is that he attributes uh, all of his success, his place, uh, what it is that has been accomplished, he attributes to the work of the Lord. So in verse one, he refers to himself as the man who was raised on high. He talks about the, being the anointed of the God of Jacob. And then he talks about in verse two, the spirit of the Lord speaking by him. Notice right off the bat, the very first thing when we get to what it is that the Lord spoke to David, the Lord says this, 
in verse 3 that the one who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after the rain. This is, this is the ideal for what a king was meant to be in Israel, not just for David, but for all of David's heirs after him. There was an expectation that as the Lord's anointed, that as the one ruling by delegated authority and power to represent the Lord over his people, that they would rule righteously because God is a righteous God. Of course, part of the struggle that we have, knowing that this is uh, a grid through which we're supposed to see David's rule and reign, is that we can point to places in which it appears that David really did rule well. He ruled righteously. He did those things that were right and just. But of course, the longer or the further we get into David's reign, the more it becomes apparent that for all of the good things that David did, there was another side to that ledger where you would say David was far from righteousness. He did not rule in a way that imitated or reflected the wise and righteous rule of God. Nevertheless, the ideal for the monarchy in Israel, and this is an important point for all of us when it comes to the issue of authority, the ideal was that God was giving his people a king not for the benefit or the comfort of the king himself. In other words, David was not being raised up because God was merely looking to give David a lot of perks and a lot of benefits, was not necessarily raising David up so that he would have uh, a nice, comfortable life, living in a palace, having people answer to his every whim. But notice the reason that the king is raised up, the reason that the king is seated on his throne is for the benefit of the people. The one who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises. It's like dawn breaking on a dark land. It's like well-watered ground. The people are being fed, they're being cared for, they're thriving under the rule and reign of this righteous king. That is what the authority of the king was to be used for. So consider then that whereas in our context, particularly today in the West, and particularly in America where we, where we uh, prize and value so highly individual rights, freedom from tyranny, and we in some ways are almost suspicious of authority, that that's not the approach that the Scriptures take at all. Authority at its best is delegated by God given to certain individuals for the benefit of the people that they manage or the people that they are responsible to protect. So in that sense then, the question for anyone who's in a position of authority should be, uh, should be taken from a passage like this. Can you say that in the exercise of your authority, that you're using your authority, your position, your responsibility in such a way that your people are thriving because of it? So parents at home, the authority that God has given to you, you are not, in, you are not in essence a king or a queen, but in many ways you do 
rule over or exercise authority over your home. One of the most challenging questions that you can ask yourself as a parent, if, especially if you have kids in the house, whether they're young or teenagers or uh, on their way out, is to ask, am I using the position that God has given me? Am I using the authority that has been delegated to me and the responsibility that I have? Am I using it in such a way that those under me, my children, are better for it? Am I using my authority to cause them to thrive, to shepherd them, to feed them, to develop and nurture them? Or am I using the authority and the position that God has given me in selfish ways, in such a way that I try to use my authority to make my life more comfortable at the expense of those around me? Husbands, this is an excellent question to ask yourself, not just in terms of parenting, but in terms of the relationship that you have with your wife. If, as we believe, God has called men as husbands to lead in the home, to, uh, to provide for, to protect their wives and their families, you need to ask yourself, is the authority and the responsibility that God has given me as a husband, am I using that in such a way that my wife is thriving because of it? Or do I use my authority or the attempt at authority as a way to push her away or keep her down or merely to satisfy my own whims? Authority at its very best, whether it's in the church, whether it's in the home, in the workplace as an employer, authority at its very best is meant to provide life and joy for the people who serve under it. Then notice you have the contrast between David's house and anyone who falls outside of David's reign. David, because he recognizes that it's the Lord that has built him up, says that everything has been ordered, everything is being brought to pass because of the everlasting covenant that God has made with him. At the end of verse five, for all my salvation, and all my desire, will he not indeed make it grow? So David recognizes that it is not the Lord who has simply placed him in this position of authority who has made him king over Israel and then essentially hands it off to David and says, okay, David, do the best you can. Now that I've got you here, let's see what you can do with this. But again, out of the goodness and the graciousness of God in making a covenant relationship with David, David, I'm going to establish your kingdom. I'm going to see to it that your descendants always sit on the throne over my people Israel. God not only places David on the throne, but God is the one who gives David the ability to thrive. So once again, this is a healthy corrective or at least a needed reminder for when we read in the pages of Scripture all of the exploits that David has, sometimes God is front and center, explicitly named and right up front. You can't miss the way that God is, is working for David. At other times, God may not actually be mentioned at all. He's almost assumed to be in the background, but whether God is out front and visible or remains quiet in the background, all of what David experienced came from the hand of the Lord. God is the one who has caused him to thrive. 
if there is any good thing that David has experienced in his reign, it's because God has done it. And God has done it because He has promised to do so. So that even when David doesn't deserve blessing, God blesses him anyway. Even when David does not deserve to be made secure and to be protected as the king of Israel because of his sin and his guilt, God nevertheless secures him and preserves him. Not because David has made himself worth preserving, but first and foremost because God has simply promised to do so. In contrast to David's security and his thriving under the hand of the Lord because of God's promises, David also goes on to say, verses 6 and 7, that the worthless, every one of them will be thrust away like thorns because they cannot be taken in hand. Whereas David remains secure, there are many on the periphery or on the outside who would seek to undermine David, who would seek to pull him off the throne. Or, if it's not directly a personal attack, there are many people on the outside of God's people Israel who are not one of God's people who would seek to undermine or destroy them. And David recognizes that because of the promises of God, not only will he and the people remain secure, but all those who would oppose him will ultimately be destroyed. The security that David has from his enemies is not because of David's ingenuity, it's not because of his strategic abilities, but it's because the Lord fights his battles for him and declares that all those who rise up against the Lord's anointed will be put down. Nevertheless, verse 7 makes it clear that although the outcome is guaranteed, there is work that has to be done. So David can be assured of the victory. Israel's king can be confident in the fact that no harm will be allowed to touch them, that they will not be deposed because the Lord has bound himself by covenant oath, yet they still have to go out and fight. They still have to strive. They still have to labor. For the Christian then, as those who are destined to rule and reign with Christ, of course, our ultimate hope and confidence is found in the rule and reign of Christ on high even now. But there is a needed reminder for us that as we continue to move through this life, safe and secure under the rule of our King, guaranteed that we will win ultimate victory over our enemies, that that doesn't, uh, it doesn't negate the responsibility that we have to actually go and do battle. When we battle against our sins, when we labor and strive, we're not just going to sit on the couch and, you know, the Lord just speak a magic little formula over us and all of a sudden we're made holy. But every day that we get up, we have to labor and fight to do battle against the flesh. We have to crucify ourselves day in and day out. We have to, every day that we rise up, we have to recognize that we have an enemy who is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. But we can go out and we can wage war and we can labor fully confident that the king leads us and the king is going to bring his people to victory. Ultimately, as we wrap up this, this portion of the chapter on this psalm, 
it's important to recognize that what David provides us a model for, we actually see perfectly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Even at the very beginning when David refers to himself in verse 1 as the man who was raised on high, those lines or those words and expressions are used of Christ in the New Testament where Jesus is raised up, where he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, we're told in Hebrews 1.3. Of course, what David presents to us in uh, what very, uh, very spotty way in terms of good and bad, ruling righteously in the fear of God, we know that when David's greater descendant comes, Jesus, that he will, will rule righteously and perfectly without any mistakes, without any faults to be found, and that he continues to do so now, and that even when the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people sought to destroy God's anointed king. All they did was further the purposes of God and see to it that nothing less than what God had ordained to happen would take place. We celebrate that especially on Resurrection Day, on Easter. What we're celebrating is not just simply that Christ has been raised again, but that in being raised again, He has now been raised to the heights of His throne, seated on high. David could not possibly imagine the way that this song would reverberate through history and how it would foreshadow the work of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then briefly as we go to verses 8 and following, what we have here is a discussion of some of David's military men. Uh, time doesn't permit us to go through, uh, go through every verse. Let me just say in a general sort of way, uh, it's sort of interesting. You have two groups that are represented here. In the first portion, say from verses 8 through verse 17, you have the three. This three that we're really not very familiar with but that are singled out here are, because of their exploits and their feats, are in some way singled out to be almost another level from the rest of the men that are listed. And then the rest of the men that are listed are just known as the 30. So you have the three and the 30. 30 is just a round number. You probably have 36 or 37 people who are, who are mentioned from verses 18 and on. So the three and the 30. We're gonna spend most of our time looking at the three here in the minutes that we have left. Verse eight, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had, Yosheb, Beshebeth, a Tekomenite, chief of the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite uh, the because of the 800 slain by him at one time. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahoahite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle and the men of Israel had withdrawn. He arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to strip the slain. Now after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, a Herorite. And the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot, defended it, and struck the Philistines. And the Lord brought a great victory. Let me pause right there. Draw attention to the fact that again, 
for a conclusion to the story that has been so focused on David, it's interesting that not once but twice we have lists of David's military men where it is made very clear that David's success, from a human perspective at least, that David's success both before being king and after being seated on the throne is connected in some way to these men who are around him. David does not do all of the work himself. David is not a one-man show. He is the one that God has singled out to rule and to reign over his people, and yet he has men with him who labor and who work with him. Just as important, though, as taking the focus off of David and, and making it apparent that not everything rises and falls on this uh, on this human leader. It's also important to note that for that even in these great victories, represented by the three, that twice we're told, at the end of verse ten, and then at the end of verse twelve, that the Lord brought about a great victory that day. So, in the same way that we saw in verses one through seven in David's song that it's the Lord who has raised him up, the Lord who has caused him to thrive and to prosper in every good way, we see that David's mighty men, the three, when they accomplish great things, it's because the Lord is the one who is fighting for them. They do not win battles under their own strength, but they do it by the strength of the Lord. And then we come to a very curious little episode in verses 13 through 17 where we're back to something that these three, this famous three do. Then three of the 30 men or chief men went down and came to David in harvest time to the cave of Adullam while the troop of the Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. David had a craving and said, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did." Again, just for the sake of brevity, these men at great risk to their own lives and their own well-being snuck in through enemy lines, got David a drink of water from a well. David is seen here to be very human, very fleshly, even to the point of saying, I'm thirsty. And all for the sake of giving him water from a certain well, these men risked their lives to do so. David, in response, does to us what seems like a very strange thing. He pours it out and says, ultimately, I'm not worthy of this, of this sacrifice that these men were willing to make. A drink of water for me in exchange for, potentially, their lives, it's not worth it. But notice that when David pours it out, he, it says in verse 16, nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. So what David does in pouring out this water by pouring it out to the Lord, it's almost as if David is taking this water, this valuable water that his men have risked their lives for, he's pouring it out as a drink offering to the Lord. 
Now, of course, the roles are gonna be reversed when we get to the person of Christ. Of course, Christ will thirst on the cross. He will show his humanity and his weakness. But all of the pouring out that's done will not come from the disciples on behalf of Jesus, their king. They run and they flee. But Jesus will pour himself out as a drink offering for the sake of his people, for the sake of his friends, so that they can drink living water. And so that you and I can come and on an Easter Sunday be reminded of the fact that because Jesus has experienced, has tasted death himself and has been raised to new life, anyone who comes and who answers the call of Christ is giving this living eternal water to drink fully and freely. And it's a water that will satisfy not just once, but for all the days of our lives. So it's helpful then to remind ourselves that what we see of David is just a small shadow of what we're going to see in the greater king who's to come, Jesus Christ. Jesus who satisfies our thirstings, Jesus who pours himself out as a drink offering to the Lord on our behalf, and Jesus who, because of the promises of God, remain faithful to secure salvation for his people and to be raised on high, seated at the right hand of the majesty of God to rule and reign over us, for us, and even in us and through us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the riches of your word. Would you help us to remember that when we read about David in the Old Testament, we ultimately are not reading about David, but we're reading about the work of God to bring redemption and salvation to his people. And that even when we read of David and the men who are attached to him, we are to be looking ahead eagerly to how the early stages of this work would ultimately be brought to uh, fruition and fulfillment in the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have raised up your anointed king from the grave and that you have seated him at the right hand of the majesty on high. We rejoice in that and we go forward confident of ultimate victory and success over sin, sickness, disease, and even death. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Sunday school lesson. I thought that was beautiful how he uh, tied in uh, David's life uh, to the death, burial, and resurrection of uh, Christ. And as we uh, come to this uh, Easter Sunday uh, morning, and I want to welcome you to our uh, live stream uh, on this uh, Easter morning as we uh, celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And I trust in these very challenging, difficult days, uh, you're knowing uh, Christ's power in your life enabling you to uh, persevere. And uh, let me just mention several things before I turn it back over to uh, Andy to lead us in a time of uh, praise and worship. Uh, let me just remind everyone, I mentioned this last Sunday, but I'm going to conclude my sermon this morning with the Lord's Supper. So you need to make sure that uh, you go get some bread or uh, crackers uh, and then uh, something to drink. If you don't have juice, that's okay, whatever, even water. I think under these circumstances, Jesus will understand. And remember, it was Jesus that 
change the water into wine. So uh, whatever you can uh, utilize uh, will, will work. So that'll be at the very end of the message. So why don't you go ahead and uh, get that ready. Uh, and as I participate, you'll be able to participate uh, with me. Again, just to remind you that we will continue this live stream uh, as long as we uh, cannot uh, meet on uh, Sunday uh, mornings uh, with uh, Jonathan's Sunday School lesson at 10, uh, with the worship service at 10.30. And then remember Jonathan Wilson, uh, our youth minister. He is, uh, has prepared uh, two lessons uh, each week, one for our children, Adventures in Praiseville, and then a second one for our young people on Level Up Bible Study. Uh, Jonathan and the youth leaders are also providing a daily devotional uh, for our young people and their families, so take advantage of all of that. I want to encourage you to remain uh, faithful in your uh, giving. Uh, this is the fourth Sunday we have not been able to uh, meet together as a church family. We have seen a very significant reduction in giving, and I know these are very difficult days for many people, and we understand. Uh, we just ask, as God blesses you, that you'll be faithful in your giving, and you can uh, mail your uh, gifts into the church, your tithes. You can bring those by the church office. Or again, remember there is uh, the online giving. You can just go to the church website, the homepage, and you'll say, see right at the top right-hand corner uh, an opportunity for you to uh, uh, click into that link. And it's very, very simple, and uh, we would just encourage you to be faithful there. Uh, two prayer requests that I want to give you that uh, are very, very important related to church members. I want you to pray for Jennifer Gaylor. That is the uh, daughter of uh, June and Jerry Gaylor. Uh, she had open heart surgery uh, the other day in Atlanta, a uh, very serious uh, condition. Uh, right now she's doing well. It'll be a very long recovery. I believe she'll probably be in the hospital in Atlanta at least two weeks before she can return uh, to Columbus. So please be praying for her that all will go well, that she'll be kept free from complications, and that God will raise her up. And then I want to ask you to pray for Sarah Worthington. Uh, I shared with you last week that Al, her husband, uh, one of the great men in our church's history, uh, one of our past elders, uh, passed away after uh, many, many years of uh, health decline. And uh, we had his grave service uh, this past uh, Thursday. It was a, a beautiful service, but of course, uh, sad in the fact that in these days, uh, uh, not all the family members can participate in that. And Sarah herself was not able to participate because she became uh, very ill. Um, she had to go into the hospital, and uh, she's dealing with two things. Uh, she has an intestinal blockage, but she's also contracted the coronavirus. And so we're asking you to pray for Sarah. She's at uh, Piedmont here in town. We're very thankful in relationship to the uh, virus. She's really not knowing any symptoms from that, and uh, we trust it will stay that way. Uh, but this intestinal uh, obstruction, uh, it, it is serious, so just pray that uh, God will give the doctors wi wisdom. Her doctor is actually Dr. Paul Cartwright, a member of our church, so pray for Paul as he ministers uh, to her. And, uh, and, uh, and also just to remind you that uh, Al and Sarah Worthington uh, are Nancy Holloway's mom and dad. Nancy and Mark Holloway, of course, members 
uh, of our church. And then before I pray, I want to, uh, and I think this will be meaningful to all of you, and I think we can uh, all share this sentiment. I want to read you uh, a letter. Uh, this letter was uh, given to me by uh, Anthony Merritt, that is uh, Jonathan, who just led our Sunday school uh, lesson. This is his oldest uh, son, uh, a young adult, and um, you listen, and I think this will be meaningful to you, and I think, again, you share his sentiment. He said, my beloved church family, uh, being raised under the loving care of my God-fearing parents, I have been attending church from infancy until young adulthood, rarely missing Sunday school or a service. There has never been a point in my lifetime where I have been separated for so long from the many joys of your presence. Yet now, due to the crisis at hand, it has been weeks since I have seen your lovely faces. Uh, sitting from the back of the empty sanctuary and watching the live stream, he's back there right now, in real time has been a, som a somber reminder of my great affection for each and every one of you. Some of you have, uh, I have known from the early years of my childhood. You have been my mentors, Sunday school teachers, close friends, Awana leaders, mothers, fathers, brothers, and sisters in Christ, people whom God has used to build and perfect my faith. And now in this time of separation, God has opened my eyes in new ways to see how desperately I need each and every one of you. Oh, how I have come to miss your fellowship and tender encouragement. I wait in eager anticipation for the day when we shall again gather together and lift up our voices in praise. My great comfort through this time of trial has been the knowledge that our good God is very close to each and every one of us. And if we are all very close to him, then we must be very close to each other as well. If not in body, then in mind and spirit. Now, let us run the race with endurance. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I wait anxiously and prayerfully for the time of our next meeting. I love you all, and God bless you. Your brother in Christ, Anthony Merritt. And then he leaves you this uh, uh, encouragement from Psalm 40, verses 16 and 17. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Uh, we appreciate that, Anthony, and again, I think it expresses uh, uh, the heart of our entire church family. We do desire uh, to be back together, and we hope and pray that uh, comes quickly. So uh, bow with me in prayer, and then after we pray, I'll turn it over to Andy. Uh, Father, uh, we can all uh, relate to exactly what uh, uh, Anthony has expressed in his uh, letter. Uh, you've developed a deep love for one another in this uh, church family. I've always noted that over the, the years. The, that is, is what has always uh, touched me about this church family, uh, our, our love for one another. And as I've so often mentioned from this pulpit, in uh, my 42 plus years here, I have never uh, known this church 
to ever become aware of a need where they did not step to the plate and in love uh, meet that need. And Lord, it does hurt uh, to be apart from one another, uh, but we do thank you, as Anthony mentioned, as we're all close to you, we are close to one another through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. But Lord, we do look forward to that day when we can gather again and sing your praises and worship, and that truly will be a glorious day, and we pray that you would hasten that. Uh, therefore, Lord, we pray in your infinite mercy as we continue to battle with this um, invisible uh, enemy, uh, the virus, uh, we pray uh, you would allow us to uh, see this mitigated. We would ask you that uh, you would stop its spread. Uh, we pray that you would empower uh, those within the medical community uh, to be able to develop effective treatments, uh, to be able very soon uh, to develop a vaccine. Uh, Lord, we pray you would uh, bless our health workers as they minister to those that have contracted the virus. We pray you would shield and protect our health workers and just use them as instruments in your hand uh, to minister healing to those that contract uh, the disease. Uh, Father, we continue to pray uh, for wisdom for uh, President Trump and his administration. Uh, for the governors of each of the state and local uh, governments, that you would continue to give guidance and wisdom and understanding uh, going forward in uh, relating to this uh, virus and then the proper timing of opening things uh, back up. And we trust you for that. And then, Lord, we do pray for Jennifer Gaylor. Thank you that you brought her safely through a very difficult and complicated uh, surgery there in Atlanta. Uh, we pray that you would minister grace to her and uh, keep her free from complications going forward, that she would regain strength and wholeness and be able to return home. Uh, Lord, we cry out to you for the uh, Worthington family, especially for Sarah. Uh, Lord, you know how... Uh, she has uh, struggled with uh, grief in the loss of her dear husband of uh, 65 years. And then uh, uh, immediately behind that, uh, suffering this uh, intestinal blockage as well as contracting the uh, coronavirus. Uh, we pray that you would uh, show her mercy and that you would touch and uh, heal her. Uh, give Dr. Cartwright other doctors ministering to her wisdom and, and understanding. Uh, bless uh, Nancy and her uh, two brothers, uh, Brad and Kenny, and of course their families, uh, and let them all know your uh, love and your mercy and uh, your, your grace. Just uphold them by your mighty, omnipotent hand. So Lord, again, thank you for this glorious uh, Easter Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ uh, which is a reminder that uh, you have the power to overcome all things because if you truly overcame death, what is there that you cannot overcome? So we put our trust in you and so even set our hearts free now to praise you, uh, to honor you, and take us deeper into that power of your resurrection that we might walk in newness of life, that we might honor you with our lives. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Andy. Well, good morning. And uh, as 
We look out, and as we see in our world, uh, many, many churches sit empty this morning all around the world. But the tomb of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, also remains empty. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Drive the nails in my hands Laugh at me Where you stand Go ahead And say it isn't me The day will come When you will see Cause I'll rise again Ain't no power on earth can tie me down Yes, I'll rise again Death can't keep me in the ground Mock my name, my love for you is still the same. Go ahead and bury me, but very soon I will be free, cause I'll rise again. power on earth can tie me down yes I'll rise again death can't keep me in the ground Say I'm dead and gone, but you will see that you were wrong. Go ahead, try to hide the sun, but all will see that I am the one, cause I'll come again. can hold me back Yes, I'll come again Come to take my people back Come to take my people
Well, as we talk about the church, uh, the church building being open, being, uh, not open, excuse me, uh, being empty, uh, it really puts another perspective on the church and who the church is. It's not the building, it's the body of Christ. I hope you think about that. As we worship together, we're still connected. The body of Christ is God's people. The church is God's people, not this building uh, and the four walls. So as we worship together, um, would you just focus on who we came to worship this morning, a risen Savior who is alive and who is worthy to be praised. My prayer is that if you want to stand, if you want to kneel, if you want to lay prostrate, however you need to worship this morning, my prayer is that you just give God all your allegiance, give him all your praise. In Jesus' name. Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet. My Savior, all that cursed tree. His body bound and drenched in tears. They laid him down in Joseph's tomb, the entrance sealed by heavy stone. Messiah stayed and all alone. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. 
sing that again. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise His name forevermore. Endless days we will sing your praise. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord our God. Yes, he is alive. Would you 
just sing that again, the ground. The ground began to shake, the stone was rolled away, his perfect love could not be overcome. Now death, where is your sting? Our resurrected King has rendered you
Amen. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Andy. Again, if you uh, happen to uh, turn in late uh, to the live stream, uh, I mentioned uh, when I was sharing some announcements that at the end of today's message, we will be observing uh, the Lord's Supper. And so uh, all you need to do is there in your home, uh, get some bread or, or crackers. And then, uh, and even if you don't have juice, just whatever you have, even if it's a glass of water, again, under these circumstances, I believe Jesus will definitely understand, but I thought it would be very meaningful for us to conclude the service that way. We, here at Edgewood, we uh, observe the Lord's Supper uh, one Sunday every month, and uh, these, from my perspective, are our most special services, and uh, the ones that I've missed most, and so I wanted to include that. Uh, today. Now, of course, today we do uh, celebrate uh, Easter, the greatest event of all history. And what makes Easter so special? Because on Easter, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. After suffering six long hours nailed on the cross, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, It is finished, Father, into thy hands. I commend my spirit. But notice, he did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished, referring to the work he came to earth to accomplish. The words, it is finished, is teletestai in the original text and literally means debt paid in full. Jesus finished the work of paying off mankind's sin debt to open the way of reconciliation between God and man. After Jesus died, his body was given to Joseph of Arimathea, who wrapped the body in a linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb. The tomb was sealed with a large, heavy stone, and a Roman guard was detached to prevent anyone from removing the body. Darker than the inside of the tomb was the despair that overcame his disciples, his followers. Jesus was dead, and with him all their hope. But on the third day, Easter Sunday morning, when the women went to visit the tomb, they found the stone rolled away and the body of Jesus missing. Two angels appeared to them with the message, why? Do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen as he said. It's interesting to see the disciples' initial response when the women told them that Jesus had risen from the dead. We read in Luke 24, verse 11, these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. That soon changed as Jesus Christ appeared to his followers at least 10 different times after his resurrection. The message of Easter is Jesus Christ is alive, but we need to see the resurrection of Christ is much more than an historical event to look back on and to celebrate. It is that, but it is also something that gives us great, great hope today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 reads from the New Living Translation, because Christ 
was raised from the dead, now we live with great expectation. Let me read that again. Because Christ was raised from the dead, now we live with great expectation. You know, we often have expectations of people which lead to great disappointment, but never with Jesus. He never disappoints those who trust Him. We read in Romans chapter 10, verse 11, anyone who trusts in Him will never be disappointed. Even in relationship to His resurrection from the dead, Jesus clearly told His disciples what to ex expect ahead of time. In Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, Jesus told His disciples, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, referring to Himself, will be delivered to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death. They will hand Him over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him and spit on Him and scourge Him and kill Him, and three days later, He will rise again. One thing the resurrection teaches us is that you can fully expect Jesus to fulfill His promises. Consider now three wonderful things you can expect from Jesus this Easter if you will only trust Him. First, Jesus will forgive your past sin. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 reads, he, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 reads, Then God made you alive with Christ, for He forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. These verses teach a glorious truth, and let me try to make it very personal for you. When a criminal was crucified, a sign with the charges against him was literally hung around his neck as he made his way to the place of execution. When he was nailed to the cross, the sign was then attached to the cross directly above his head. Jesus took the sin list that hung around your neck like a hangman's noose and put them around his neck. When it says he canceled the record of the charges against us, that word canceled in the original text literally means to wipe clean. Jesus took the record of your sin and through his death on the cross took the punishment you deserved in order to pay for the penalty for your sin. And if you put your trust in Jesus, you have His promise. He will wipe your sin list clean. He will declare you justified before God, not guilty. A great example is the thief on the cross who put his faith in Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He asked Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus responded 
while on the cross, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. The thief on the cross teaches that no person can ever stoop so low in sin that he is beyond the reach of God's mercy. And it is never too late to come to Jesus. There's another lesson the thief teaches. Receiving God's forgiveness of sin and gaining assurance of an eternal home in heaven is not on the basis of your works and efforts but it is on the basis of God's grace, a free gift that God offers you to be received by faith in Christ. The thief on the cross never had an opportunity to do anything for Jesus. He was not baptized. He never had an opportunity to perform a single good deed. The thief simply placed his faith in Jesus who loved sinners enough to pay the full penalty for their sinful deeds. As a result, this vile sinner experienced God's forgiveness and gained entrance into heaven in a transaction that took less than 10 seconds. Somewhere in heaven, there is a grinning ex-con walking the streets of heaven. No one would have given this thief a prayer, but in the end, that is all he had, and in the end, that was all it took. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 reads, He made him who knew no sin, referring to Jesus, He made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, God the Father punished God the Son as if He were the thief as if he had committed the thief's sins. Why? So God could treat the thief as if he had lived Christ's sinless life. Jesus, who knew no sin, he became sin. He became what we are. He bore our sins on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he not only cancels out our sin debt, but when we place our faith in Christ, he literally deposits into our lives, deposits, deposits into our account all the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is how God sees the child that puts his faith in Jesus. He sees him as he sees Jesus. Listen to Isaiah 53, verses five and six. He, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You need to make that very, very personal. He was, per he was pierced for my transgressions. Put your name there. He was pierced for Andy's transgressions. He was crushed for Andy's iniquities. The punishment that I deserved that brought me peace was on him. And by his wounds, Andy is healed. Andy, like sheep, 
he has gone astray. And he has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on Jesus, his son, Andy's iniquity. Let me explain it this way. Let me use this hymnal. Let's say this is a book that's the record of your life. And there's your birth certificate, and we can say here's your death certificate. And then this is the complete record of your life. Everything that you've uh, done, all your thoughts, all your attitudes, behaviors, character, conduct, everything is recorded right there. Good, bad, and ugly. And of course, we know, as the Bible tells us, and every man knows within his own heart that all men, what, are sinners. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Yes, we're created in God's image, and man, you see great nobility in man, You see man attempting to do many, many good things, but mixed in that is what? Sin. Uh, Because uh, that image of God has been marred through man's rebellion uh, into sin. And not only our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell into sin, and as a result, we inherited that sin nature for them, uh, but we choose sin as well as they chose sin. And so, therefore, we are guilty. And... uh, If I say this hand represents me and this hand represents God, that's our problem. That is what stands between you and God. That separates you from God. And as a result of that separation, we will suffer eternal punishment in hell. But praise God, what these verses are teaching us is that Jesus, the very Son of God, did not consider, as the Bible tells us, equality with God as something to selfishly cling on to, but he emptied himself, becoming what? A man. And he became a man in order that he might humble himself and die that humiliating death on the cross for our sins. And when Jesus died on the cross, the record book of my life, the record book of your life that separates us from him was laid on him. He took the punishment we deserved. He paid the penalty for our sin. And then when he was buried, our sins were buried with him. And then he rose again, and now he offers forgiveness and new life to all who will put their trust in him. You know, the apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and and this is very important because it shows how the resurrection is significant in all of this. He wrote, if Christ has not raised, if he's not raised from the dead, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. The reason Paul wrote this is because the resurrection of Christ was God's acknowledgement that the payment of Christ's life satisfied his justice against the sins of the world. The resurrection of Christ was God snatching the payment up, signifying a completed transaction. So again, the resurrection of Christ is the proof that God was satisfied with the laying down of Christ's life on the cross for us. And now that way of reconciliation to God has been opened up to all men 
who will come through Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. For those who put their trust in Him, what He accomplished for them through His death, burial, and resurrection, they know that forgiveness and they know reconciliation with God. So I invite you this Easter morning to place your faith in Jesus, receive the forgiveness of your sins, and then live the rest of your life in appreciation for the gift of forgiveness that Jesus gave you. What can you expect from Jesus this Easter? If you will put your trust in Him, Jesus will forgive you of your sin. And second, Jesus will give you power to overcome your present challenges. Don't you wish you could sort of put your life on uh, autopilot and just coast through life? But reality is nobody has it easy. It takes energy and power. You need power to control things and energy to get through things. But reality is your personal power probably peaked in the very first months of your life. For that brief period of time, the entire world evolved around you. You were fed, you were burped, you were changed, you were cuddled, you were rocked. In your infantile mind, you figured out very quickly, when I cry, I get attention, and that's power. As you grew up, two terrible things happened. One, the world got much, much harder. And two, people stopped paying attention to your whimpering. Part of growing up is realizing that much of life is out of your control. You can't control the future any more than you can change the past. You cannot control the attitudes, decisions, and reactions of other people. You, not, you cannot control the economy or the weather. You cannot guarantee yourself good health. You cannot escape evil, suffering, and injustice. And you cannot stop your loved ones or yourself from dying. Nevertheless, we try to control the uncontrollable. And how do you know when you're doing that? Stress. That's right, stress. You are tired all the time. You experience physical, emotional, and spiritual fatigue. We've even created a vocabulary to describe this chronic power shortage in our lives. I'm stressed out, burned out, worn out, played out. I'm frazzled, on my last leg, at the end of my rope, about to become unglued, ready to throw in the towel. But listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe Him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realm. Notice, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is made available to you today through faith in Christ. Romans 8, verse 11, from the Phillips version, reads this way. Once the Spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives within you, he will, by that same spirit, 
bring to your whole being, yes, even your mortal bodies, new strength and vitality. Ephesians 3.18 talks about being strengthened with God's power, that power of the resurrection through His Spirit. Where in the inner man? Verse 20 of that same chapter reads, Now unto Him, unto God, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ever ask or think. How? According to the power that works within us. Jesus offers you the same power that raised Him from the dead. But notice where he offers it. In where? Inside you. Notice, did you notice the description within you? In your inner being. And this should tell us something. Now listen very, very carefully. This is so important. God's primary objective in your life is not to change your circumstances but to change you and to change you from the inside out. Something you cannot do in your own power, but it can be affected by the power of God that dwells within you. See, God is in the business of changing habits, hangups, and hurts that keep up messing your life, that keep messing up your life. He gives power to move from guilt to forgiveness, from sinful habits, from sinful behaviors and attitudes to Christ-like character, from hate to love, from bitterness to kindness. He gives the power of the resurrection not so much to escape circumstances, but to endure circumstances as Christ endured the cross and then to use those circumstances as an opportunity to put on display for a lost world to see the power of Jesus Christ through our human frailties, through our human weakness. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. This is again from the Phillips version. This priceless treasure, talking about that treasure of Christ, talking about this power of the resurrection that dwells within the believer. This priceless, priceless treasure we hold, so to speak, in a common earthenware jar. And he's talking about these bodies, talking about our human frailties and our weakness that we are so very susceptible to uh, stress and hurt and pain and perplexity. So we have this priceless treasure, but it's in these common earthenware jars. Why? To show that the splendid power of it belongs to God and not to us. We are handicapped. That's the reality of the human experience. We are handicapped on all sides. But we're never frustrated. We are puzzled, but never in despair. We are persecuted, but we never have to stand it alone. We may be knocked down, but we are never knocked out. Every day, we experience something of the death of the Lord Jesus. Why? So that we may also know the power of the life of Jesus in these bodies of ours. Then in verse 16, we read, this is the reason why... Referring to the believer who's trusting Jesus, this is why we never collapse. 
The outward man does indeed suffer wear and tear, but every day the inward man receives fresh strength. I also love the way the paraphrase, the message puts that, uh, this verse. He says, so we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside, it often looks like things are falling apart on us on the inside where God is making new life, not a day goes by without His unfolding grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 reads, we were crushed. This is the Apostle Paul talking about a horrific experience he had in his life. He doesn't identify it for us, um, but you can see it was horrific. Uh, it was overwhelming. Uh, he says, we were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But what was the result? He says, as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely on God who raises from the dead. In other words, if God can raise the dead to life, all other trials, all other adversity challenges pale in comparison to that. And then I love that wonderful verse out of Philippians 4 where Paul also wrote, I am ready for anything. I love that. I am ready for anything through the strength of Christ who lives in me. See, never forget, there would have never been Easter without Good Friday. No resurrection without a cross. What was true of Jesus Christ will be true of His followers. God will not spare us from the suffering of Friday. But when it's Friday, we know Sunday is a coming. That God has the ability through His power living in us to enable us to endure, and not only endure through it, but as we endure in the midst of all that, His power is put on display through our weakness that others might be drawn to Him. Because of Easter, what can you expect from Jesus if you place your faith in Him? Jesus will forgive your past sin. He will give you power to overcome your present challenges. And third, Jesus will give you a future home in heaven. You know, with the uh, coronavirus pandemic, one thing that is kept before us every single day, especially if you're listening to the news, is the reality of death. Hebrews 9.27 tells us each person, each and every person is destined to die once. And after that comes judgment. Even if they develop a cure or a vaccine for the coronavirus, and we pray they will, that's not going to put an end to death. Death will still remain inevitable for all of us. And after death comes judgment. There will be a reckoning. You will have a reckoning with a holy God that will determine whether you suffer eternal punishment in hell or eternal joy in heaven. This is why all people have an innate fear of death. 
But the Bible tells us in Hebrews 2 that Jesus frees those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You know, this past week, as I mentioned earlier, I did the graveside service uh, for precious uh, Al uh, Worthington. And uh, one of the texts, Bible texts that I used in that service was John 11, verse 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Right now, Al is living as he never lived before, as death for the believer merely is a door that opens wide into the very presence of Jesus and all the glories of heaven to know that wonderful transformation to become pure even as he is pure and to know uh, that glorious life. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 reads, We know for certain, we know for certain that he who raised the Lord Jesus from death shall also raise us with Jesus. We shall all stand together before him. You know, we, we long to be able to get back and worship together. I hope even a greater longing is when we shall all stand before him in his immediate presence there in heaven. Would you like to know for certain that when you die, you will be raised up to live with Jesus in heaven for all eternity? Romans 10, verses 9 and 11. Here it is. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a man believes, resulting in righteousness. Remember what we talked about earlier? He made him who knew no sin become sin on our behalf, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. What did we begin this message with? Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, now we live. We live with great expectation. Jesus will forgive your past sin. Jesus will give you power to overcome present challenges. And Jesus will give you a future home in heaven if you will only trust him. We want to make the transition now in celebrating the Lord's Supper. And I trust this will be very meaningful to you. I know there are many watching that you are a follower of Christ. With your mouth, you confessed Jesus Christ is Lord. With your heart, you believed that God raised him from the dead. You placed your confidence in Jesus alone. You received by faith the gift of forgiveness that he offered you. You know that power of the resurrection dwelling in you. And for us, this is a time of great celebration. I trust there are those viewing the live stream this morning 
that when you began, uh, you may not have known Christ. You may never have put your trust in Him. You were like one of those sheep that had gone astray, wandering aimlessly in your sin, and maybe even knowing many self-destructive behaviors. And I pray this morning, as you've heard the glorious truth of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and that Christ died for the penalty of your sin and rose again to offer you forgiveness, that you are to receive by faith that forgiveness being in what? Receiving Jesus. As you open your heart to Him to make your heart Christ home, to forgive your vision, to take control of your life, to know that power of the resurrection, to also set you free from the very power of sin so that you can walk in newness of life, so He can free you from those habits and hang-ups and hurts that have been messing up your life, that He can move you from guilt to forgiveness, from sinful behavior and attitudes to Christ-like character, from hate to love, from kindness to forgiveness. And so, if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, I would encourage you to observe this with us. This may be the first time you've ever observed the Lord's Supper. This is something that is reserved for believers, uh, for followers of Christ. And if you made that decision, I pray you would let us know about that. Uh, we would like you to, uh, uh, we'd like to come along your side to help you uh, in your Christian growth. Uh, we'd like to be able to provide baptism for you as you make your public profession that, yes, Jesus is my Lord. And Baptism is just an acknowledgement of your faith in Christ. And then when I take you under the water, that you've been buried with Christ and you raise again by the power of the resurrection to walk in newness of life. And there are two elements uh, in the Lord's Supper. Uh, one is the bread, the other is the juice. The bread, of course, represents the body of Christ sacrificed for you. And the blood of Jesus Christ represents His blood that was spilt on the cross for you to wipe away your record of your sins, uh, to make you clean, justified, not guilty before God to know newness of life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse, verses 23 and 25, we read, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, and if this is the first time you've ever observed the Lord's Supper, Jesus is the one that originated, instituted the Lord's Supper, and he did that with his disciples the night he was betrayed, uh, the night before he was crucified on the cross. And it says on that night on which he was betrayed, he took the bread. And it says, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I want you to see, and I often mention this to our church people here at Edgewood, there are two words it's mentioned there that I think are the two of the most precious words in all of the Bible. 
Notice it says, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is, and here are the two words, for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Everything Jesus did, he did for you. He left the glories of heaven, came to the ghettos of this sin-cursed world for you. He lived a sinless, perfect life for you. He taught. He performed miracles to demonstrate that He truly was the Son of God for you. Jesus went through those mock trials for you where He was beaten, spit upon, mocked. He was scourged for you. If you're a new believer this morning, you may not be aware of the fact that prior to the crucifixion, he was scourged. They took a very long whip with a wooden handle with leather straps, and at the end of those leather straps, they sewed in bits of bone and metal. And you can imagine the damage that would do to the victim when they were whipped. It just literally ripped their flesh to shreds. Significant blood loss. Jesus would have, they would have ended the scourging with Jesus in a state of shock, just short of death. And this was executed by our, a professional executioner, a Roman soldier by the name of Elictor. And he was an expert at bringing man right to the edge of death without killing him. That's why the scourging was called the second death. Jesus endured that. For you. And then he bore his cross on that walk to Calvary for you. Where he fell beneath the weight of that cross. And then arriving at the place of execution, he was laid on that cross and large steel spikes were driven through his hands and through his feet for you. And there on that cross, he was put on the cross at nine about noon, it says, the earth grew dark. As if creation itself was mourning the death of its creator. And in that darkness, he cried out, my God, my God, why me have you forsaken? That was for you because he was taking the penalty of your sin, because the one who knew, knew no sin became who you were in those moments, being executed for the penalty of your sin. And because sin separates man from God, the Father forsook him. And not only did the Father forsook him, but all the wrath of God, the very fury of God's wrath against sin was poured out on his son. Jesus was afflicted by his Father, punished, by his father, put to death by his father. The Romans were just an instrument. 
He did all of that for you. And remember, Jesus said that nobody took his life. He laid down his life voluntarily. He said, I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to bring it back up. He did that for you. So pray with me right before we partake of the bread. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for all that you did for us. Thank you while we were yet sinners. At our very worst, your enemies, you died for us. You suffered the punishment we deserved. You paid the penalty for our sin so that through faith in you, the record of the charges, the record of our sin against us would be wiped clean. And we could be declared before God is not guilty, justified. So on this Easter Sunday morning, We thank you for your body given for us. Please partake of the bread. And as you do, remember him. He did it all for you. That passage goes on and says, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What we need to understand is when Jesus shed his blood on the cross. That blood sanctified the cross. It took an instrument of execution and it transformed it into an instrument of salvation, an instrument of justification, of declaring people sinners, not guilty, an instrument of sanctification to where we know the power of the resurrection changing us, making us a new people, and an instrument of glorification giving us our future hope and assurance of a home in heaven. And it's interesting, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, as we look at the death of Christ, the fact that everything he did, he did for you, it says, now we're to present what? Our bodies, our lives, all that we are, all that we possess as living sacrifices holy and acceptable. You say, wait a minute. You know, I'm, I'm not holy. How, how can he accept me? Well, you need to understand again, when his blood was spilled on that cross, he sanctified the cross. And for all who put their faith in Jesus, 
and touch that cross by virtue of faith in Jesus, God declares you holy. And it's on the basis of his declaration, not your efforts, not your work, not your performance, but it's a free gift. He declares you holy. That's how he sees you. And as a result of that, he accepts that sacrifice. And so, as we partake of the blood, this would be a wonderful time for you to lay down your life as a sacrifice for Jesus as he laid down his life for you on the cross. Realizing you can only do that because of what the blood accomplished for you as that instrument of execution again was transformed into an instrument of salvation. Pray with me. Again, we thank you, God, for Jesus' precious blood his precious blood spilt on that cross, transforming that instrument of execution into an instrument of salvation for all who touch it through faith in Jesus. And thank you through faith as we touch that cross, you declare us justified, not guilty. You indwell our very hearts through the power of the Spirit, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead so that we not only know deliverance from the penalty of sin, but the very power of sin and can walk in newness of life. And you also give us that assurance of a home in heaven and all those future glories. So thank you for your blood spilled for our sins for your blood that redeemed us to be your bride and to know an eternal romance with Jesus, to always, forever, even in these days, to be your helpmate, your co-laborer, to accomplish your work here on earth and then to praise and worship you throughout all eternity. Amen. Take and drink. And remember Jesus. Well, God bless you. And trust that, uh, again, in these days, uh, that you'll know that transforming power uh, of the resurrection. And I'm going to turn it back over to Andy uh, to close once again with that uh, beautiful song, uh, Rise again. Drive the nails in my hands Laugh at me Where you stand Go ahead And say it isn't me The day will come When you will see Cause I'll rise Power on 
can tie me down Yes, I'll rise again Death can't keep me in the ground Go ahead And mark my name My love for you is still the same go ahead and bury me but very soon i will be free cause i'll rise again ain't no power on earth can tie me down yes i'll rise again death can't keep me in the ground Go ahead and say I'm dead and gone But you will see that you were wrong Oh, go ahead and try to hide the sun But all will see that I am the one Cause I'll come again Ain't no power on earth can keep me back Yes, I'll come again Come take my people back Yes, I'll Come to take my people back